Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. Thank you. I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huin, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Thank you for getting that right. Good evening, Guy. Good evening, Hui. And Brian Schmidt. Good evening, guys. Good evening, Brian. Brian. How's it, how's it hanging? I, I kind of want to be called the Indiana Woodworker. Oh. No, you can't. Oh. <laughs> Why? Because I'm vastly unqualified? Yes. Well, there's that. There's that. There's that. I yes. agree. So yeah. this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. Right now we have one level and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. And stay tuned in the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. So let's get right into it. Hui, you've got the first question. All right. So this question is from Bob Clark, and he says, Thanks for the podcast, guys. My question, I'm building a sideboard for utilitarian storage when entering from my garage. It is mostly cherry, will have a cherry top, and is about 22 inches deep by 60 inches wide and 30 inches tall. I'm planning to use eight quarter cherry for the top with a resulting thickness of whatever results from jointing and planing the boards to the edged glued for the top. Would there be any advantage in building the top from four quarter boards face glued to make up that eight quarter thickness? I will be chamfering the bottom of the top so that any glue line would not be visible. Thanks so much, Bob Clark. You know, his question is, is there any advantage to building up a top from four quarter boards face glued up to make eight quarter thickness? I don't believe so. I don't. You're you're probably going to be fine, but it's a lot of work. And my personal opinion is I would rather have fewer glue lines. And I don't really think. You really need a top that thick. That is an extraordinarily thick top. Eight quarter cherry top for a sideboard. If you want the appearance of thickness, I think you might want to do some lipping. So that's adding uh, some countertop or some thickness to that countertop. The visual effect of adding some thickness to it. Me personally, that's what I would do. And I would go with, you know, if you had the eight quarter cherry, I'd maybe rip it. And see if I could get three quarter three quarters of an inch out of it and add a lipping to it or a lip to it to get that thicker look for a countertop if you wanted. But I I would avoid uh, face gluing four quarter boards to get a eight quarter material. That that seems like a lot more work. And if you really do want that thickness, I would either get you know six quarter material or or eight quarter material to get that thickness if you really really wanted it. But I, I just don't see the advantage. I mean, it, again, it's it depends on what you're planning on doing. If, if, if you want to do some like chopping and whatnot to it, then, you know, maybe you want that extra thickness. But I, I don't see the point. Brian, what do you think about that? You've done some solid wood countertops for uh, built-ins and whatnot. What's your process there? Yeah. So if it's going to be, if it was going to be cased in on both sides, like if it was fit in between two walls, um, then I would probably go the the lipping route on the front edge. Now, if it's going to be sitting on top of this sideboard, it's nosing. 
Nosing. It, is it okay. called nosing? I thought it was called lipping. Nosing. Okay. Nosing. Nosing. Whatever. Whatever. Okay. Cheeking, eyeballing. I mean, it's all part of the face. Nosing, lipping. <laughs> oh, ooh, that was a bad dad joke. Sorry. So whatever you want to call that that piece of solid wood that you're going to put around the edge, nosing per guy, um, you can only do that in the same direction of the grain, right? Like if you were to miter wrap that around the edge and start going cross grain, you've got a wood expansion and contraction explosion right. waiting to happen on that yeah. on that miter joint or or butt joint, whatever wherever it turns a corner. Um, so we we've actually we actually had a project. Uh, I think it might have been today at work where the client is going after a two inch finish thickness um, miter edge. Uh, we'll call it a waterfall table that the grain doesn't technically flow down. And we had some ten quarter ash that mm-hmm. we milled down to a finished two inch thickness, except we were one board short for the top. And what we ended up doing is taking to what I presume were five quarter boards and gluing, face gluing those together mm-hmm. and make a thicker board. And what we did so that you wouldn't see any of that glue line is we simply put that board in the middle of the glue up for the top. And since mm-hmm. it's a miter edge wrapping down, you're able to hide hide the glue line in the right. miter. What, but let's see, is it Bob? Yeah. What Bob is talking about is putting a pretty heavy chamfer on the underside of that. So if you were to have a a situation where you had to glue uh, two boards together to get up to that desired thickness, I think as long as your chamfer is going to come up to about the the point of that glue line on those boards that are going to be face glued together, then I think you can, yeah, to his point, he can avoid that glue line. I don't think there's any advantage to doing it that way. Um, Right. I don't see any advantage to doing it that way, unless that's the only lumber you have available. Guy, what do you think? Well, he says he's planning to use eight quarter cherry for the top and just whatever thickness it ends up being when he gets done thicknessing it is. Mm -hmm. I say do that. Why go through all the hassle? I, I, I think he's saying, should I glue, you know, take eight quarter and be happy with whatever I'm left with, whether it's, you know, one and seven eighths or one and three quarters or one and a half, whatever it is mm-hmm. versus a true eight quarter. And, you know, from a design standpoint, sometimes even a 16th of an inch can be visually enough to throw a piece off. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I think you really have to look at the the size of this thing, and if it's if it's twenty two inches deep, sixty inches wide, and thirty inches tall, myself, I wouldn't go any thicker than an inch and a half for the top. I'd probably mm-hmm. be somewhere mm-hmm. between an inch and a quarter and an inch and a half for that mm-hmm. top at the thickest. Mm-hmm. I think would be fine. So if you want to start out with eight quarter, even if you have six quarter available. Mm-hmm. You could do that, but I wouldn't face join boards together to build it up because there's really no point in it. Yeah. If you can get the thicker material, I would just get the right. thicker material. Right. So, so I, I, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. If this is encased between two walls, at, sort of like as a built-in, then absolutely, I would probably not bother with the thicker material. But being that 
a sideboard, at least from my understanding of most sideboards are sort of standalone. Yeah, pieces. they're freestanding. Right. So then therefore, yeah, you might want to get that thicker look and it would look odd to have uh, nosing on the front of that. Yeah, there's no there's no reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. Realistically. All right. I think Brian. Yep. What you got, man? All right. This one's from Phil Evans and Phil on a journey back from a road trip to Montreal was getting caught up on the podcast and he thought of a question about heartwood and sapwood and walnut. So he says, um, my question is about evening out the sapwood and heartwood color and walnut. So you can maximize the yield from boards and slabs. Do you have a particular process and or product you'd recommend here? If your solution is to simply cut it off, seems a shame to waste all that wood. Have you found any good uses for it? So for, for any of our listeners that aren't familiar with walnut and the difference between the sapwood and the heartwood, the sapwood is the portion of the board that's closest to the outside of the tree. And in walnut has kind of a, a yellowish tannish um, color to it. And when you get closer to the center of the tree, you get that richer dark brown color. And it's a pretty stark contrast from sapwood to heartwood um, as you get closer to the center of that tree. So a lot of times you'll end up with a board and running down the edge of it will be that really light yellowy color. And Phil's question is, how do we how do we even out the brown um, or do we just have to cut off that sapwood? Mm-hmm. Um, my preference is to cut it off, but that's not a terribly helpful response. Um, so a way that you can go about evening out that color is you could use, um, a dye, like a transient dye and getting, you know, they've got some walnut or some shades of walnut Brown in their lineup. Mm -hmm. And, and you can use that and using a series of light coats, you can, you can work on dyeing the outside of that or the, you know, the sapwood portion of your board and, and even into the heartwood too. But, um, through, through a series of coats can start to, to even out the color. The other option as you get closer to the finishing stage is, um, to apply, uh, more of a, a gel stain over the top. Um, I'm not a huge fan of gel stain, so I don't, I don't yeah. totally recommend that, but, but that is an option. Yeah. Um, guy, what do you think? Uh, I'm a big fan of using the dye and I would use it over the entire board, not just yeah. the sapwood. Yep. Um, it'll, it will help even it out quite a bit and it'll make the, the, the wood color, not completely color fast, uh, to UV, but it will help dramatically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would, do the, the whole board, not just the sapwood. I'm a big fan of, of using dye and then using something like uh, naphtha to mix the dye because it dries really super quick. doesn't rain the grain very much. It still raises the grain, but not as much as like water does. And I think mm-hmm. it penetrates a little bit better. I'm probably mm-hmm. mistaken about that. And that's just my feelings on it. But mm-hmm. um the only other way that you could, you know, ensure that the sapwood doesn't contrast with the heartwood is to just get rid of it because sapwood is evil. 
<laughs> so I recently had a um, dining room table for uh, a client that had a little bit of sap wood in it and it, gosh, it looked terrible. And I was so upset about it. And I did dye it. And thankfully, she wanted a really, really dark color. So I think something that I found needed to happen in order to really even out that color, both with the heartwood and the sapwood, is that you have to go a little bit deeper, a little bit darker than even the base color, because it is hard to kind of match that all together. Um, and, and I did do that. It came out pretty dark. Uh, and it completely hid that sap wood. It really kind of blended quite nice. But but I'm all, I'm all about dyes, and I use denatured alcohol instead of naphtha. I, can you, so have you? You can use naphtha with it. Yeah, I've never tried that. Okay. Yeah, I, use yeah, I imagine that I would use be... naphtha or the the, the alcohol. Either, either one. I just tend not to use water. Is naphtha hotter than? Does it flash off faster than denatured alcohol? No, it's about the same. Okay. If you don't have any right. alcohol laying around. The thing with sapwood is, I mean, I see quite a bit of tabletops that are made out of walnut where there's been no attention whatsoever made to where the sapwood is in the field of the tabletop. So in other words, you have sapwood, which is, you know, typically on the edges because that's where sapwood lives is on the edges of boards. And then that board is put in the middle of the field. So yeah. you've got you've got heartwood, sapwood, and then this hard straight line where the next board, heartwood, is hitting that. Right. And to me, that just looks, it looks like a six-year-old did it. It looks so freaking horrible. But I see it all the time. And I'm just like, oh, I just want to scream. I just want to yeah. scream. Um I personally don't like that. There are some people that looked at me and go, "Oh, that's so beautiful." Like, well, it just doesn't do anything for me. I, I yeah. myself, if I can get rid of sapwood, I will. If I can't, based on the the material I have that I have to use, right? I'll try to incorporate that into the look of it, but not just willy nilly, just wherever. You can't do that. It just doesn't look good. It doesn't right. look good. Agreed. Agreed. So, all right. I'm going to take the next question. And I had to Go take a different it. question because that question, Brian, was the exact same one I had for my first question. <laughs> my bad. But it was by somebody else. But it was the exact same question. So, anyways. So, this question comes from Patty. And she says, hi, guys. Thanks for the helpful podcast. I've been building furniture for a few years now. And as a newish woodworker, I have tried many different finishes in the pursuit of finding the one and only one. My question is, do you keep a log of which pieces of furniture have which finish so that you can see how they age and for when, if repairs or finishes are needed? Thanks, Patty. I actually used to do that. I used to take a board and I'd put, you know, I was trying to decide what finish that I wanted to use on something. So I would, I would do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. So I'd get a board and I'd sand it to the same uh, grit as what I do the project at. And then I'd put, you know, like three or four different finishes on that board. And I'd go through the whole finishing process on that one board 
and I would look at it, okay, say, and I would choose one. I'd say, okay, I'm going to go with this one. Now, did I make a note of which one I actually put on the furniture so I could go back in a couple years and look at it? No, I didn't do that. <laughs> However, I did try to find the best finish. And, and to be honest with you, after about, oh, I think a year, maybe two years of doing that, I finally settled on what would be considered armor seal today as the best, easiest finish I could put on. At that time, I didn't have any spray equipment, and I was kind of making my own armor seal with uh, polyurethane, naphtha, and boiled linseed oil and doing third, 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 and mixing it together. And that's it, pretty close to what armor seal is, and that's what I put on. Um, it was easy. It's still easy. Um, mm -hmm. doesn't require any special equipment and it's really hard to screw up. It just takes time. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever taken count of, of what the, you've put on stuff? We No, I have not. I kind of, I kind of remember what I put on stuff. Yeah, I do as well. Uh, it's, it's, pretty hard for me to forget because I spend so much time on each piece. Uh, now I do make sample boards, of course, but I have to be right there with you. And I hate to be a copier, but I mean, when it comes to uh, the most reliable, easiest to apply and the one that I use the most is probably going to be wipe on poly, whether it's one that I make myself armor seal or like a Minwax or Varathane uh, wipe on poly that's pretty much what I'm going to about 80% of the time, uh, unless otherwise specified. I feel like it's durable enough. If you build up enough of a finish, uh, it is a relatively thin finish and it does require quite a few, um, coats of that stuff because it's so thin to really sort of build up anything. Uh, but that's, that's really the one that I go to the most. Uh, what about you, Brian? What do you, what, what are you using that now? I know you don't paint, you have somebody else do that, but what's your, what's your go-to with, I guess, all wood furniture, maybe not the painted cabinets or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Typically it's, it's a coat of seal coat shellac and then, um, armor seal satin four five coats. <laughs> we're, we're so, we're so creative here. Listen, I, I learned 85% of what I know about woodworking from listening to this podcast. So I'm, I'm a product of my environment. Um, <laughs> now, now Patty, the, the simple fact that you're asking this question tells me that you've got a much, much greater attention to detail than I do. If you're thinking about how do you, how do you keep track of what finish you've applied on what piece of furniture, uh, to be able to evaluate how they age and if repair or refinish is needed so that you're able to, um, go back and maybe, uh, color match, whatever the original finish was. I, I mean, if you kept something as simple as just a, a notebook that you threw in a drawer and every time a piece of furniture went into your house or went out the door, if it's a client build and you just, I mean, you'll need one page for, you know, years worth of furniture. Yeah. Um, if you were to just jot notes down on, on what they are and the date, and that'd be a pretty easy way to do it. If you've got the discipline of remembering to do it and not getting behind on it. Yeah. There have been a time or two where I've wished I remembered 
you know, was that a, was that a Minwax stain or did I, did I do a mix of dye for that project? And yeah, I think, I think it would be helpful, you know, and especially when you're, you get to be my age and you forget, you know, what you had for breakfast. So looking at something and saying, well, this came out really well. And, you know, I remember, I remember building it five years ago. What the hell did I put on it? You know what I mean? And so, you know, another way to do it would just be, you know, everybody's got phones that we're tied to, it seems. Just take a picture and add notes to the, to the picture. Yeah. And you can go back to that picture and see what you've put on it. No, it's just a suggestion maybe. Yeah. So, so Guy, can I ask you a question? Because I think you kn- you probably know the answer to this better than either myself or Brian. And if I'm incorrect on that, please let me know. Uh, so, tongue oil, finish, Danish oil. So, I think Watco is like Danish oil. Tongue oil finish is like a Minwax thing or a Varathane thing. What are the differences? And are they also easy to apply? Well, I, I'm not. I've never used like tongue oil, so I don't know exactly how that works. But you know, the 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 wiping polyurethane is mm-hmm. very similar to the way that Danish oil works. Okay, Danish right. oil, I believe, has the, the Watco stuff. I believe has some polyurethane in it. But it's also got boiled linseed oil in it, and it's it's. I think it's close to the same thing. I don't know if it's exactly the same thing, but it's pretty close to the same thing. Okay. And I'm just, for the most part, I always mix that stuff myself. I call it Armor mm-hmm. Seal just because people recognize it by the name Armor Seal. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I'm ninety nine percent of the time I'm mixing it myself. Mm-hmm, I'm not mm-hmm. buying Armor Seal. Right. It's just right. too damn expensive. I think. Yeah, it is. It's pretty it's pricey. pricey. It's you know, $20. The last time I bought it, it was like $20 a quart. Yeah. Which it's is- up to, I think, 40 or more now. Oh, you're kidding oh my. me. Are you kidding Wait, me? Maybe that's a pint. Which one's bigger, a quarter or a pint? A quart. Quart. Yeah. Using, I I using the new. I, I just paid $42 for it. A quart? Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm. Almost certain of that. Wow. It's been a while we since sh- I bought that. Sh- yeah. 30, $38 at Rockler. Oh my Lord. So yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. And, and to be honest with you, most of the time I'm uh, right now I'm using my sprayer. I'm using that, that water-based conversion varnish over slack. Mm. That's mm. nine out of 10 things. When I do build anything, that's, that's what I'm using. Yeah. It dries quick and it, it it's, it's a, for me, it's a foolproof finish so yeah. all right we want you grab your your last question anyways okay so this is from trevor clump and trevor asks hi fellas i first want to say thank you for developing and producing this podcast and sharing your experience with the rest of the mere mortals of woodworking we're mortals as well we're mortals as well I am a nights and weekend uh, hobbyist woodworker, making small projects for family and friends or DIY projects around the house. I'm fortunate to have a modest collection of tools and enjoy trying new things and learning how to up my game. My question is really more about the process of using steel wool and vinegar to ebonize some red oak. I'm making into a small case with a couple of drawers. 
The way I understand the process is that the combination of the steel wool and vinegar ultimately reacts with the tannins in the red oak, turning it darker. I'm hoping black. He says that explicitly. I'm, I've also recently discovered original tried and true finish polymerized linseed oil and beeswax and really like the results I've gotten on a few projects I've used it on. Would ebonizing the red oak change how a finish like tried and true works? Is there a better finish in your opinion? How would you how would each of you finish this if black was the end result? And FYI, I don't have spraying equipment. Thanks again for all that you do for the woodworking community. Okay, so for those of you who are listening that are unfamiliar, ebonizing is a process of turning uh, material, wood, with a high tannin content, basically black. Uh, the problem with it is that it doesn't always turn that pure black. In fact, actually, from my experience and from seeing others do it, it can sometimes get a little bit gray um, and look kind of, I don't know, in my opinion, a little drabby. It's just more gray than black. So, Trevor, before we get into like the whole tried and true thing, I really think you need to test out that piece. If you're really going for black, like pitch black, you might not get that with the steel wool vinegar on red oak. And especially with red oak, considering that it doesn't have nearly the same tannin content as white oak does. So you need to try that out because you might be a little bit surprised on the result. Now, with regards to the tried and true, uh, that is also a testing thing, right? Because you will not know the, the pure color of that finish until you actually put it on to that ebonized red oak. Every piece is going to be a little bit different. Every stock of wood is going to be slightly different. Me personally, if you're going for that deep, deep, dark black, I've done two things. I've done um, the Rubio Monaco black dye stain, which is ultimately just a dye. And I've done the trans tint black dye. And that will get it black. It will get it very black. And if it's not black enough, you can add more. I think that's a better way of doing it than doing it with the steel wool and vinegar. But definitely you need to experiment. Don't take our word for it. You need to try it yourself and just try it on a small piece. Um, Guy, I know that you're not a huge fan of stains and you are a huge fan of like whatever that wood is. I want it to be that color and I build it from that wood. So what would you do? <laughs> I mean, I, I've tried the ebonizing wood before. And I'm just telling you right now, Trevor, it will never be black. I'm not even going to tell you to try it. You just won't get it black. It'll be some kind of transparent, really dark gray. If you get enough of it on there, it's going to take several coats. It's going to be uneven. It's not going to look real good. I, I just, mm -hmm. I don't see that being viable if you want to turn something black. That's mm -hmm. just my opinion. Mm -hmm. I have not used, I'm a big fan of the trans tint dyes. Uh, I have not tried their black, but what I have used before is India ink. 
Mm. Uh, and that turns stuff pretty black. And then I just okay. seal it with shellac. And then you put whatever you want on it. Have you ever tried any, make anything black, Brian? I have not. I have not. I know. I mean, at work, we'll, we'll stain tables and uh, we use true black, Minwax true black, or the equivalent color of Minwax true black. And they come out, I mean, they've come out pretty well black. Yeah, they're um, black. Yeah. Once once we've finished them with that, I'm not sure how many coats that takes, um, which isn't terribly helpful, but. Um, Are you, what's, what's your go-to wood if you're going to stain with Minwax true black? Ash. 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 Yeah. 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 Ash takes stain really, really well. I think that red oak is going to have a little too much pink, a little too much, uh, like peachy color to it yeah. to get it really, really black. Well, the thing, the thing too, is you have to remember is not to sand it to too fine a grit. You know, you mm-hmm. sand it to maybe like one fifty mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get good stain penetration or dye penetration. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, and the reason, and the reason for that, right, is when you when you sand at a rougher grit, you know, 150 is rougher than 220. Um, it's, it's leaving those pores more open. And yeah. as the pores of the wood are more open, they're able to yeah. accept the stain or the dye or whatever, whatever you're applying there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You'll get, you'll get uh, better but, penetration. You'll get more even penetration. Right on, right on. Trevor, we hope that help you, helps you. Um, we're back to you, Brian. All right. Um, my second question comes from Mark. He says, hi, I'm building a seating bench out of figured ash. I'd like to give it a gentle brown color and really accentuate the curly figure in the wood. I'm worried that stain won't do much to bring out the beauty in it. Should I use dye instead? What steps should I go through to really highlight the figure? I don't have a spray solution, so whatever finish... Uh, will need to be wiped on or brushed on. I prefer. I also prefer to avoid rattle cans of finish too, for what that's worth. So, how do you? So, man, this is a finish heavy uh, episode of the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you've got figured ash. You don't want to just. You don't want to just put a clear finish on it. You want to make it. You want to. You want to put turn it. You know, kind of a gentle or a warm brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and the stain, I think, to, to Mark's point, is going to coat the surface of the wood and serve as a, you know, it's gonna it's gonna block some of the some of the beauty of the curly figure. Um, so I would use I would use the dye. Um, now, when you when you, and I'm gonna sort of turn this into a question for you two guys. When you mm-hmm. do that, so when you let's say you you dye it and mm-hmm. you've applied. Fin, uh, you know, a coat or two of the dye and you want to, are you, are you supposed to sand it, sand it back maybe more so, like with a figured wood? Do you sand it back more than what you normally would so that the dye kind of holds in some of the, some of the, uh, some of that figure, some of that grain, or do you finish it the same way you would anytime you're applying dye? Are you talking about before or after you apply the dye? After applying the dye. So I always, I've sanded, lightly sanded afterwards to a higher grit than I did initially. So uh, I will typically go to like about a 150, 180 maybe. Yeah. 
then apply the die, and then I'll finish very lightly with the 220, and then I'll apply the finish on top of that. Yeah. Or shellac, or actually better off, I'd probably use a shellac or something to seal it in. After um, sanding to 220? Yeah, yeah. Now, would, would you... Would you hand sand to 220 or would you get your random orbit sander out at 220? My concern is my concern with random orbit sanding and I have done it and it hasn't been bad, but my concern is generally that, you know, I Just might be taking away right some it. of, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. What are you, what are your thoughts guy? Well, I, you have to remember why in figured wood that some areas get stained and some resist the stain, even if it's not figured wood. And most of the, the, the grain patterns or the, the figuring wood is caused by the compression of the wood in certain parts of the tree. Like mm-hmm. around a branch gives you the, the, the crotch figure. Um, so when you, when you apply the stain or the dye, it doesn't matter which, the stain or the dye, it's going to soak in certain parts of the the wood more than other parts of the wood, regardless of what you sanded it to. That's just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. my suggestion as always, when you're working with something like this is see, really try to use a, a a piece of test wood and Mm -hmm. see what works best. It may take a different combination of, you know, sometimes it might be a dye work better than a stain. The big difference between a stain and a dye, just just for the folks uh, listening that don't know, the stain it has much larger particles. Stain mm-hmm. is mostly dirt. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally dirt that's mixed into the to, into the finish. A dye is actually chemicals, and it's ground up. It's a much smaller particle. And it tends to soak into the wood deeper and give you better. Um, it's a more even finish than using stain. But in some cases, the stain may be more advantageous to you when working with the figured wood because you don't want it to get into everything. You just want it to get in certain areas. So mm-hmm. you really have to play around with it. Um, myself, the only time I have ever added uh, dye to a figure type wood is adding dye to figured or uh, tiger maple. Mm. Um, other than that, the only thing I've ever put on figured wood is just an oil-based finish. I tend to use an oil-based finish. It helps pop the grain a little bit more, and that mm-hmm. really seems to work well. But if you want a different color, you know, you're going to have to use a dye. Well, I said the only time yeah. I've ever done it is with, with tiger maple. Let me ask you this, uh, guy, because this is actually something that I would like to do possibly relatively soon is uh, getting a very neutral shellac and adding dye to that because I know shellac does wonders to accentuate grain patterns and structures. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think maybe that's might be something yeah. that he could experiment with. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've, I've finished a couple of things like that where I've, you know, added the, the dye directly to the finish. Mm-hmm. I do that quite a bit with the water-based conversion varnish, right? Yeah. Where I add dye to the, you know, right into the cup before I spray and mix it up. And, you know, I usually lay down some shellac first to, to mm-hmm. help uh, 
bring the grain out a little bit and then I'll, I'll spray it with that. And I just put dye in it and it works really well. Mm. Okay. So there you go. Okay. All right. Do I have the last question? You got the last one, brother. Bring it home. All right. Yep. Bring us home. Bring us home. This comes from AZ Custom Furniture Builder. I don't know what his name is. He's just AZ Custom Furniture Builder. I assume that means he's from Arizona. I would assume. Never assume, though. So anyways, (laughs) he writes, I recently had a client that all workers dream of. Came to me literally saying money didn't matter and they wanted a high quality coffee table. Those are the good customers. I loaded it with design features and in the end it became my highest price commission to date at over 12K for a 42 inch square coffee table. That's that's reasonable. I say that (laughs) mainly to encourage others that there are still people who will pay for quality. Anyways. My question is that one of the design ideas I pitched this customer was to do a herringbone pattern on the sides of the table using shop sawn veneer. This will be my first time ever making veneer and doing anything with it. What tips can you give me? I have a very high quality bandsaw, the Laguna LT18 equipped with a resaw king blade. That is a nice saw. I do have a drum sander, and I plan now to get a vacuum press 300 for the task. What else should I know about veneering a herringbone pattern? Well, I can tell if you're going to do a herringbone pattern, if you're not, if you're not going to buy veneer and you want to do it yourself, I would try to resaw the veneer at a little bit north of an eighth of an inch and then get it down to about an eighth of an inch with your drum sander. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. once you have that, it becomes very fairly easy to cut. It becomes fairly easy to joint. The thing with the herringbone pattern is, is that it's going to take a lot of layout. So I guess my my biggest piece of advice is to lay it out properly, so mm-hmm. you don't get surprised. The biggest thing is you're going to have to get that end grain matching up with other end grain kind of with a with the herringbone pattern so that's something to consider the the other thing is i would use you know 16th to an eighth inch thick veneer i would use a urea resin glue and -hmm. i would put that down and there's less chance of it moving around Mm -hmm. so that's what i would recommend doing so may i add to that you know trying to go for an eighth inch thick veneer Another benefit of that is you can actually edge glue that stuff together with yeah. some blue painters tape, and that help, that's going to help with your layout a lot. Uh, so you can lay everything out, you know, pull that blue painters tape across, then go lengthwise. So it kind of gives that vacuum, uh, that like stretchiness of the blue painters tape. We'll draw it together, and then fold it, unfold it, put a little bit of edge glue, put it down on some uh, something that doesn't uh, that's not going to stick, like maybe some melamine or something. Yeah, like I've actually given it. this a lot of thought because two days ago, a customer came to us wanting an eleven foot tall wall, five mm-hmm. feet wide, with not a herringbone pattern, but a different. T- it's almost herringbone, but it's not quite. Mm-hmm. And we're we we sat trying to figure out how we're going to do it and piece it together. So we, we talked about this quite a bit and we mm-hmm. couldn't even use a vacuum bag with it because of its size. 
So we were trying to figure out how to do it. One, th- one of the things we came up with too, to, you know, with, with anything like this, when you're, when you're dealing with, uh, and trying to edge joint this stuff together, it can be difficult and getting the pattern always can be difficult. So what, we, what one of the things that we were going to do is take that eighth inch uh, material and chamfer the edges. So we're actually highlighting the joint uh, where it comes gotcha. together. So if there yeah. was a little bit of a gap, you really wouldn't see it. Uh, right, right. So that's, that's something to consider too. That's something you can't do with 42nd. Right. Right. Veneer. Now, Brian, you got some, uh, you got some veneer that you showed off last, uh, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, uh, what do you, what are you going to be doing with that? You're going to be using a vacuum press, right? No. Well, I ended up, uh, buying the, the heat lock, um, iron on, iron on glue Mm -hmm. and actually did that last weekend. How did it turn out? Did it work well? It turned out really well. I was, I was very, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, okay. It's, a, I mean, it's a process, right? You've got a, you've got a roll on the glue, and you got to let it dry. And it took, it with the humidity, it just took a while to dry um, down yeah. in our basement. Yeah, but once it was dried, just laying it out and working from, I worked from an edge. Although I think they said recommended to start from the middle, but I worked from an edge. It worked out fine because I had oversized everything. Yeah. And ironed it right on, and um, I'll be doing joinery for these mirror frames. I'll be doing that um, probably on Friday. I've got to get the mirrors in first so I don't make the frame too small on the inside yeah. dimensions. So um, now the heat lock will, I think, only work on that thinner veneer. I had a Correct. veneer from Veneer Supplies, so it was a 42nd okay. of an inch. Okay. I, my understanding is that on an eighth inch veneer, the heat would be unable to penetrate yeah. through mm-hmm. the veneer yeah, sufficiently. Is that is that consistent with your understanding? Yeah, it won't, just won't work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he would probably he he would probably especially with that pattern that urea resin glue is probably going to be the best thing to yeah. mitigate any form of wood movement on both sides and using a balance proper, yeah. properly balanced sheet. Yeah. Would, do you think? Do you guys think would wood movement be a problem at an eighth of an inch thick, or not necessarily? It's not so much wood movement. It's the compression on one side. You need to just have, make sure that you're using an equal amount of uh, material on the other side to balance it properly. Yeah. Otherwise, it's going to fold like a potato chip. It'll, it'll bow. Yeah. Yep. The glue dries and it'll pull. Yep. Yeah. So now the. The advantage to AZ Custom Furniture Builder of using an eighth inch veneer is, Guy, you mentioned one thing you could do is chamfer mm-hmm. chamfer the edges of each yeah. section of the herringbone pattern yeah. and and highlight the the joint rather yep. than try to you know flush them together smooth and as Norm uh, would say, celebrate the joint. Celebrate. That's right. That's I always forget that. Celebrate <laughs> the joint. Celebrate the joint. Celebrate the um, joint. But at that. At that yeah, thickness, yeah, yeah. I mean, you'd be able to be able if you had, you know, a small gap, you might might be able to get away with a uh, little sawdust and wood glue uh, sanded into that. But for twelve thousand yeah. dollars, maybe you don't want to do that. Yeah, no, that's that's, <laughs> better not. that's acceptable. That's acceptable. But I guess my point is, it'll be a little bit more forgiving. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anytime that 
you know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of working with the, the, the 42nd give or take, uh, thickness of veneer and mm-hmm. it can be mm-hmm. tedious to get those joints. Perfect. Especially when you're doing patterns, I've made a lot of checkerboards and backgammon boards. Yeah, using with, that veneer. One forty second. Yeah, mm. and it's. I bet that's pretty it's, difficult. It's not difficult. It's just very exact, and it's very tedious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, that's why something like this, I'd probably go with the the thicker veneer. Just because it yeah. would be a little bit easier to work with. And the results will still look really, really good. I think you'd have a really cool look with it. Mm-hmm. Going with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. All right. So I think we're going to talk about what we're doing in our shops. Right on. Brian, you're making a mirror, so you're already done. <laughs> no. So, Brian, what you got going on in your shop? Um, I've got the mirror I'm making, uh, my wife is, she's a school nurse and she showed me their basket of school nurse supplies and it's a hodgepodge of things thrown into this little plastic basket. So I've got some, some curly red oak that I resawed, um, last week and I'm working on, uh, Weibel's you pick lumber up in North Milford, Indiana, I think. Weibel's Um, you pick lumber. Yeah. Never heard of it. Check it out. It's a, it's yeah, it's great. What's up, Kevin? If you're listening, um, what a great name! What? Yeah, you pick lumber. I mean, Indiana, y'all. Um, <laughs> oh no, that sounds like more like Alabama to me. <laughs> hey, we're the good people of the Midwest here. Very friendly. So, um, so I'm working on that. I am working. I've got a little bathroom bench going as well, and I just finished a dart holder for my neighbor. I went on a woodworking binge last weekend. Nice, man. You got a bunch of little little things going on, huh? Yeah, it's very relaxing. Well, get, awesome. uh, we, what do you have going? Uh, so I sent you guys a couple of pictures. I finished that entryway table. Uh, I stained it uh, this sort of silvered gray, kind of gave it a little aged white oak look. Um, and then I finished it with none other than wiping poly because it's easy <laughs> and I couldn't screw it up. Came out really nice, very happy with it. And my wife especially was very happy with it because we had a bridal party. Uh, we hosted a bridal party for, for my wife's cousin and uh, they used it as a greeting table, you know, where you, you know, write the greetings and everything on cards. So it, it ended up working out really well. Um, and then I just ordered, you guys convinced me, for the credenza, the walnut credenza that I'm building, yeah. not to veneer it. So I ordered lumber for it. And guess where I ordered it from? Weibel's you pick lumber? <laughs> no. Um, uh, CR Mooters Paw? Is that, oh, yeah. that how you say it? Mooters Paw, yeah. In Zeno, yeah. Ohio. I've yeah. never heard of that. Man, I'll tell you what. It was pretty affordable. Yeah. Like it ended up being about $7 a board foot shipped and then tax on top of that, but it was not that. Yeah, bad. they're over. Was, they're over in Dayton, near Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. So, um, so I've got them sending me the lumber. I decided to make it out of all solid. Now the doors I will veneer, but I'll use shop sawn veneer for that for the yeah. doors. I, I I used to buy um, Honduran mahogany from them. They have it really. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And then I then of course I I ordered the drawer slides and the inset hinges for this uh for this guy. So um just getting all the materials ready 
to do the build. They actually sponsored my uh, green and green clock video. Oh, th- that was that. that was that Honduran mahogany. Yep. Nice, yep. nice. Yep. With that guy, what do you got going on, man? Nothing. Nah. Nothing. Actually, <laughs> I, I one of the guys at work went on vacation, and uh, they needed something built, so I actually got to be in the shop this week. Well, for nice. three days, anyways. It's been Two a days building. One day today, sanding. Mm. So mm. that's always fun. But I got the project finished, and everybody's mm. happy. So good. good. It was a pretty simple cabinet. There's not. It wasn't. It's like a planter box. It's hard to explain. Mm. But it's for a customer that buys a lot of them, and they just needed to get it done pretty quick. So right. On. That's me. Right. When you want it done quick and not very good. I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm your guy. <laughs> You're the guy to call. Yep. So I think that's going to do it for this show. And we would also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us with the search rankings. And, of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife, or they can email us. What's our email address? You just said it, woodshoplifepodcast.com. Did I? Yeah. No, that was our contact page. I'm screwing it up. It is woodshoplifepodcast at gmail.com. Woodshoplifepodcast at gmail.com. Or yep. through Instagram at woodshoplife. And yep. I can be found at Guy Shop on YouTube or most other social media platforms as Guy's Woodshop. We? AlabamaWoodworker.com and all the links to my socials are there. Brian, how about you? You can find me in my basement because I'm not on social media. Oh, um, you're a good guy. <laughs> nonsense. Um, I do have a page on SimpleCove.com, Sean's site, and you can find me at Brian Schmidt. I think that's what it is. All right. All right. All right. Very good. And uh, we'll talk to you guys in a couple weeks. Talk to you in a couple. See you. Talk to you in a few. See you. See you.